Welcome to Mutuality Matters, gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. I'm Blake Dean here with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and today we are so excited to give you our episode with author, theologian, and professor, the Reverend Dr. Emily McGowan. Emily McGowan serves as assistant professor of theology at Wheaton College and as a priest and canon theologian in the ACNA Diocese of the Churches for the Sake of Others. She specializes in the study of lived religion and what it offers the work of theology. Her first book was published by Fortress Press in 2018, entitled Quivering Families, The Quiverful Movement and Evangelical Theology of the Family. Her PhD in theology is from the University of Dayton. She has an MDiv from Truett Seminary at Baylor University and a BA in Biblical Studies from Criswell College. She's married to Ron, and they have three children. I loved this conversation with Dr. McGowan. What did you love yes. about it, Erin? Oh, gosh. It's it's so hard to pick because, first of all, it was just such a treat having Emily on the podcast. She is someone who, if you don't follow her on social media, you really should because she's, she's really quite funny um, and insightful and just shares so much of herself. But um, we also get to talk about Advent, which we love. We love having people on that love Advent as much as we do. Some of you guys might remember our season one uh, Mariology uh, episode about Mary that um, has been well loved and revisited quite a bit during this Advent season. So we're so happy to bring you this. What you'll want to be listening for, though, in this episode is we talk quite a bit about theology of the family. Now, I know this is a podcast about gender theology. We haven't forgotten that. But family is a place where a lot of those ideas are taught and lived out. And Dr. McGowan has done some uh, extensive work and research um, and just thoughts about the family. And you're going to hear implications, not just about gender roles, but also about how we understand church, how we understand community, and a little bit about how we think about singleness as well. So all of these things kind of touch together. And I think you're really going to love the insights you're going to hear in this episode. I completely agree. And we hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Emily McGowan. Welcome. Well, if you've been around Mutuality Matters for any kind of time, you know that we start every episode with watch, read, or listen, and we're excited to include Dr. Emily McGowan in this week's rendition. So Erin, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Well, Blake Dean, every Advent, my husband and I will do different Advent devotionals, but one that I reread every single year is a compilation called um, Watch for the Light. And it's not one author, it's actually several. A good friend of mine years and years ago gave me this. This was long before Anglicanism, long before I even had a denomination. She, she, is a it currently still is Episcopalian and works as a youth minister and she thought uh, I would enjoy this um, but it's got it's got uh, Advent devotionals from like C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Henri Nouwen, Madeline Lengel, uh, Bonhoeffer, Annie Dillard, like Kathleen Norris, like all all these great authors and I love it. I read it every single year and would recommend it to our listeners. Watch for the light. What about you, Blake Dean? Um, I'm slowly working through, um, actually, you bring up now, and I'm working through his letters right now. So there's a, a published collection of his letters and kind of walking through the different seasons of his life. And I found this, I found his published work to be really um, helpful and encouraging and challenging, but um, his letters to be kind of elucidating of his own life, but also still helpful and challenging all at the same time. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. We love now. And what about better. you, Emily? 
goodness, y'all got some great stuff going on there. Um, <laughs> the first things that I thought of, uh, we're reading as a family, we're reading um, the fiction, young adult fiction series of Fable Haven by Brandon Mull, uh, which we're super enjoying. And then my personal um, reading lately, believe it or not, has been in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. Stop it. <laughs> I love it. Um, yes. because my, my family, that's <laughs> one of the things my family's gotten into during the quarantine. We realized that we had enough players to like actually have a campaign. Yeah. So, um, I am learning how to be a DM, which is like super nerdy, yeah. but I'm really enjoying yeah. it. I so. love that. That is not <laughs> what I anticipated at all, but I love it. No, I have yeah. followed, I have followed this on your social media. So I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I think it's fantastic. And and don't yeah. worry, sometimes during watch, read, or listen, we say the most asinine things that so we're true. doing or watching. It's some of it is just like brings down the level of the show immensely. <laughs> so this is, this is one of those rare moments where we have like cool things to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great. That's good stuff. So um, Emily, you have you are prolific in your writings and actually you have written on a number of topics and you teach at Wheaton and, and we know that you are someone who wears many hats. But um, one of the things that we haven't touched on yet in this season of the podcast is really a theology of the family. And you have written prolifically on this um, and you speak about it as a key to the mission of the church, um, but but not in a way in, to where we take like the nuclear family and, and worship that or try to reproduce that um, in, our, in our churches. Um, but I would love it if you could just give us an overview of why we need a robust theology of family. Why is that important to both home life and our church life and ecclesiology and the gospel mission? Can you can just introduce us to that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think you actually named one of the reasons why we need a theology of the family, which is that most of us have been under the impression for a while now that family equals nuclear family, which is definitely not the case. So the family um, in terms of scripture and then just in terms of like sociological historical study is not the same thing as the modern nuclear family. So the way that we imagine family is sort of based mainly on 1950s sitcoms. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. um, that's kind of the, our ideal of what family is, which I think actually existed more on screen than it did in real life. Um, so the family is not the modern uh, nuclear family in the midst of like post-industrial capitalism. Uh, the family, I think, in the Bible and in, in tradition and in human history is just like a network of socioeconomic and reproductive interdependence that's um it's grounded in kinship it's grounded in in biological kinship and marriage uh, but that's not all it is and so family ends up taking many forms historically so the story of family in the bible is is much more complex than just seeing it as the idealized 1950s form certainly the old testament and the new testament have like certain assumptions about family structure you see that in the text. Old Testament covenant comes via the family through these, these biological kinship structures. But then you get to Jesus and he like scrambles all this stuff in a way that's really challenging because he, he reforms or reorients the family around himself. So he doesn't eliminate this family, but he does reorient it in light of the kingdom of God and in, in light of his own person. I think 
um, the historical inaccuracies and one of the reasons we need a theology of the family, but also to like actually live as disciples of Jesus. We need to know what the family is and where it falls within the kingdom of God and in, in light of in light of the church, honestly. So I know that was a long way to, to get here, but I would say that our theology of the family and our theology of the church are actually ultimately inseparable, that yes. you need the one to understand the other. Yeah. Spot on, love. I have a question that we actually didn't prep you for. So if you have, if you can, right. if you need more time, you can totally take it. There's a um, a rising popular concept of a chosen family, just in a lot of particularly like 20s and 30s like uh, circles, the chosen family. And I think there are merits to this concept, but there's also um, detractions. I wonder if you could um, talk about how either this concept is compatible with our idea of a Christian family and incompatible. Mm -hmm. I think that would be helpful. To yeah. Listen. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? It's, it's indicative of like our current cultural mm -hmm. moment in a number of ways. One being that we find that to take jobs and to get work, we have to move away from our biological family by and large. It also is indicative of like the generational gaps that are emerging between young people and their families of origin that there's, so many substantive differences in the way they view the world that they feel they have to like break off those relationships or at least seriously minimize them um, and begin something new. I guess I don't know that it's that I would necessarily want to say there's anything wrong about a chosen family. In fact, there's there's a kind of parallel between that and what Jesus does when he says that his family are those who do the will of his father, that those who follow him and, and keep his commands. Um, so this idea that family can be affinity around this common mission is not necessarily opposed, I don't think, to, to script, what scripture has to say about family. But I will say that there's, there's simply no getting around the fact, like sociologically, that the biological kinship like, is significant and formative. So even as we might say, well, I have my chosen family. I would caution folks against thinking that that somehow like allows them to forget about <laughs> or get away from the implications of their biological kin, even if they're not in touch with them today. Like we can't ignore that that does make a difference for our lives, um, even if we're for whatever reason, we can't be in relationship with them today. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's that is uh, something I've been pondering a lot lately because um, I feel like this idea of family ties into so much, like you said, ecclesiology and the way we think of the church. Um, it, it affects the way we understand women and men on mission for Christ in the home and in the church, um, but also how we understand marriage and singleness. And I, I, I remember a, a, a moment for me was listening to a speaker years ago. She's um, she is a, a Christian um, celibate uh, lesbian, and she said the line, I can live without sex, but I can't live without intimacy. Right. And she went on to talk about people in her church that had opened up their home and said, if you ever need just to have a place to, to be, there's a bedroom for you. You can be onto our kids and you can like, you can be a part of our family life. And, mm -hmm. and this, this really, I'll never forget that. I, I can still see it in my head because that's a, that's a line I've been working on for a while, especially because working with college students. And I mean, you know, this, you are, you are in the throes of this. There is such a critical transition point that's happening where students are trying to navigate the boundaries with their families of origin and like, 
what what does it look like to go from being a dependent to being um, an adult with my parents? And I I don't see a lot of resources that are super helpful and directive for that demographic for what is a transition that is just constantly happening in that stage of life. And so thinking about these things and thinking about how have we as the church talked about this? How have we mm-hmm. determined uh, good and right ways to think about a theology of family in connection to all of these different conversations? And you mentioned, you know, Jesus making sort of that distinctive moment in Mark 3, you know, your mother and brother and sisters are here. Well, who who are my mother and brother right. and sisters? And points to the disciples. Um, oftentimes I've, I've seen that passage. We sort of unpack it as if to say, well, why would Jesus, is he not honoring his mother? But I think it's like the flip is really like what he's saying about his disciples. So can you talk to us a little bit more about how it is that we think of the family in terms of the body of Christ and the church as mm-hmm. as we exist, both including the chosen and family of origin yeah. ties? Yeah. So one of the things that I that I want to do in my writing about family is I've already mentioned about the nuclear family, but I also think it's important to note that like family doesn't equal marriage necessarily. Right. Right. So that, that singles and uh, families that take a variety of forms are included in family and that all of us as, as family, as households are included in the household of God, the family of God. Um, I feel like we, we understand who we are as families, as households in light of the household of God, whereas it tends to be the reverse, like in modern, at least modern American society, we tend to think of the church, the church serves the family. Mm. Um, the church kind of exists to produce like, I don't know, religious goods and services to, to help the family do its thing and be successful. And right, like right. the point of the family then is to like raise successful kids and by successful, we mean like fulfilling the American dream or something. <laughs> right. But like that's that way when we know there's lots of reasons why that's a problem. But <laughs> I think the main one that I'm concerned with is the idea that the church um, is displaced by the family. And what I think is actually supposed to be happening is that, you know, the waters of baptism are actually thicker than blood of biology, right? So, mm. so water, the water of baptism makes us into a, a new family. And that means that these kinds of, well, it means that various forms of life can be and can function as family within the family of God. So, you know, but a, a, a few single folks making a life together or um, a, a couple and their kid and then their, their good friend. We have a couple of single friends actually ourselves who are part of our family. They come to dinner every Friday, every Wednesday. We play games together. We um, celebrate holidays together. We were nail biting over the election <laughs> together. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm kind of getting far afield. But I think that like, the family is actually brought up and taken up into the church. Uh, the church is the institution, the body that lives into eternity. The biological family, as vital as it is, has an end point. It will come to an end. And so that, I think, helps to keep it in proper perspective when it comes to all these various forms of life we find ourselves in, as single, married, widowed, divorced. Yeah, I, I, I was... Um reading an article you wrote a couple years ago and I loved your kind of an extension of that idea that you wrote that um, our dinner tables can become sacramental extensions of the Eucharistic table right instead of the Eucharistic table being an extension of our family table the the order is 
um, from the Eucharistic table to our tables at home, where we learn to be the family of God, we then take into our homes to be the family of God right. elsewhere as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that then that then impacts thing. If the church is is the place from which families derive their sense of purpose and mission, then that means that you know, for instance, if you have children, um, that the point there is not to raise like financially successful you know american dream fulfilling children the point is to raise disciples of jesus um, that you are in fact a community of disciples who are growing toward christ together and yes parents have a leg up because they're further along in the process but the goal is not you know a, a four bedroom house with a white picket fence and a dog and two and a half kids the goal is is that the kingdom would come in whatever form of life that means for you. Yeah, you touch on something that I think is, um, I think several of our listeners will appreciate. So with children and understanding the tie between the Great Commission and the creation mandate, um, the idea, go be fruitful and multiply and go and make disciples, um, share this kinship of, of kingdom purposes, not just procreative purposes, but procreation factors in to sure. that. And so, so my husband and I, we don't have our own biological children, but we feel very strongly about the idea that we are still called into that creation mandate, into that kingdom building um, with, with children as as we as we find them as as we engage them and, and to make an intentional habit mm -hmm. of of making sure that we're living out that part of the gospel mission and that took a while for us to really kind of think intentionally about that and look at that and for a while there was this idea of like what is expected of of us and separating the idea of of biological children being able to have them versus just thinking critically about the gospel in our lives. And we realized that those two things came together and coincided. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can fulfill this mission. And so it's, it's beautiful to me how the gospel sort of covers over every place we might find ourselves, whether that's singleness or marriage or with children or without children. And so it's not really about the standard family st status quo as much as how is the gospel exhibited and how do we understand family in the course of, of these varying situations because it's the gospel and the kingdom ethic uh, right. versus just a pattern that we're all trying to cut out and follow. And I just, right. I just think that's such good news for, for all of us who aren't living the nuclear, you know, experience. Right. But yeah, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate your perspective in that. Yeah. I like to say that we all kind of operate with a family blueprint and those family blueprints come from a variety of contexts, obviously. But I don't actually think the scripture gives us a blueprint. Mm. I know that that can be controversial for some, and I would want to nuance and explain that a bit. But I don't think that we have a blueprint. I think it seems to me, at least, scripture teaches that family is more about function than form. Mm. Mm. Yes, there, there is a sort of, yes, there is a, a normative form for sure that we see yeah. in Genesis. But right. in, particularly once we get to the New Testament, it's primarily about practices. It's how the family functions, what we do mm. together. And what do we do together? We work together. We, we care for each other's bodies. We care for each other's minds and souls. Um, and we do work in the world together and so that and we we practice the kingdom of god we practice the resurrection as a community uh, in light of the church community 
Yeah, so I, I personally have tried to major on the function and, and major less on the form. Kind of a follow-up to that for maybe listeners that this is kind of a foreign way to think about family or growing up where form is maybe emphasized or perhaps overemphasized. I wonder, uh, could you give some more specific language to what you mean by function versus form? So I, I'm coming out of the evangelical milieu. So in my context, the form of family that was taught, my family blueprint was that you need a the spiritual head uh, husband who is the breadwinner for the family uh, the spiritual leader of the family and then a um, submissive supportive wife who may work outside the home if she has to but her real her highest calling is to stay home and and raise their children and then you have your children who you're trying to raise to be obedient you know god honoring christian kids and so the family, by and large, at least to me, typically gets equated to like gender roles and roles within the home. So children are supposed to submit, parents are supposed to, to lead, to discipline, wives submit to husbands, husbands, you know, love their wives and lead them sacrificially. So that, that's sort of the vision of family that I was given. And it does map right onto that nuclear family mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier from, from the 1950s. What I'm trying to say about function is that family is as much or more so about what we do for each other and together. So I was raised by a single mom mm. and surely, surely we don't want to say that she doesn't have a family because she doesn't live up to that form, that blueprint that we all have. Right. Um, but she, she cared for us and clothed us and made sure we had good education make sure we were supported emotionally and mentally and all that stuff. Um, made sure we had spiritual um, nourishment from the church. So that's functioning as a family, even if the form is not mapping onto this idealized vision that we all have. And you could say the same of, you know, grandparents who are raising their grandkids or again, widows or widowers, you know, whatever it might be. So well said. And, and I think it's, this is one of those conversations where, yes, the nuances are important, right? Because we don't want to just say, ah, oh, just, you know, it's it's choose your own adventure <laughs> when it comes to what, what constitutes right. a family. But at the same time, there's a rigidity that is like superimposed onto right. onto this idea of family. And, and I think partially because we're there is a lack of, I think, extensive literature and study and teaching um, mm -hmm. that does more than just um, apply to some of the surface basics of, you know, keeping obedient children, keeping a marriage together, which are all, you know, good and important and, and mm -hmm. I, you know, not, not a problem at all. But, but that sort of behavior management, sort of maintenancing mm -hmm. um, without any sort of theology of family to, to orient it, I think, uh, comes comes at a price and so um that's actually something we do a lot of premarital counseling because you know it's it's college it's <laughs> marriage season all the time and um and thinking too about like how do we how do we help establish that early on how do we talk about that instead of just the the management maintenance inside of transitioning into this space with another person um and so i i really appreciate just your contribution uh to that I'd like to shift a little bit into some of the ecclesiology. So scripture uses familial language for God. It, 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 we, we see it sort of uh, a little bit in uh, the Old Testament, but that, that father language is used much more extensively in the New Testament, becomes pretty prolific. We as a church historically, you know, it's in the Lord's Prayer, that reference to father is, um, is dynamic, and we, we sort of don't even think about calling God father. 
Then we also have this history where in the church, we begin referencing to each other as brother and sister, which again, is also easily just sort of overlooked and taken for granted. And because I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, I, when I started getting into a place where my, um, my pastor was a priest, um, and we would call them father or mother, uh, this, all of this sort of tied in. And I remember Tish Harrison Warren at one point, <clears throat> I forget, I think it was a podcast she was on. She mentioned like, uh, she made a case for why the church needs mothers mm-hmm. and it ties into some of this orienting language of family within the church. And you, mm-hmm. you yourself are a priest, um, yes. and also a professor and a mother to your kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you occupy a lot of these spaces. And so, um, can you tell us a little bit about just from your own perspective about this idea of use of familial language, especially within the realm of the priesthood? Mm. Um, and of course, speaking, we're speaking really from the Anglican tradition here. So there's, sure. there's a, there's a niche to it, but we'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question. This is something I have to admit. I don't, I actually haven't thought a whole lot about. I have thought about being called mother because that was one of those things that um, as a former Baptist, it, it did weird me out a little bit that we called priests. Right you know, father or mother, it felt like, well, doesn't Jesus say we're not supposed to do that? Like, you know, God (laughs) is our father and I don't know about this. Um, But as I, as I leaned more into, um, into my research on, on family and particularly the church as family in the new Testament, it began to make more sense. I mean, you've got Paul, for instance, in a couple of places talking about his, his labor for uh, the church like that of a mother, you know, um, and, and this language is all through the writings of, of the church fathers, the mystics especially. And so I think it is actually helpful in, in reframing ourselves, again, not abolishing the, the biological kinship and biological family, but right. like setting it into its proper place within, within the church so that, you know, I am mother to other people's kids. I am mm-hmm. spiritual mother to them and, and, and to other people in the, in the congregation, young and old. There's something beautiful about that, particularly if, if your family of origin was not very functional, nurturing. We should also acknowledge that there's plenty of ways that that can be abused as well, right? So if you interpret those roles of mother and father in um, abusive ways and lording it over sort of ways, yeah. then you, you, well, you get out of step with Jesus, first of all, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it can cause all sorts of problems. That's, that's not good either. Yeah. And I think for our friends, because um, we have listeners from across the spectrum of denominations, um, there's this idea, I think that even even though, because uh, I, I, I'm with you, there was a leap of like calling someone father or mother in these roles and sort of getting used to that. Um, but also thinking of the idea that just like we would say an ideal family situation would have a father and a mother um, as part of that. And, and then also communities of, of fathers and mothers who are feeding into that family dynamic as a, as a spiritual and caring community. Thinking about our church leaders and caretakers and mentors as thinking we, we don't, we can't just have fathers. Um, we need mothers in the church. And so, so I I say that to kind of, uh, offer a possibility to our listeners, um, especially many who are curious about ideas of women's ordination without going into all of that, just, just to suggest the idea of women being engaged at a significant level where that 
where that spiritual motherhood mm-hmm. um, falls in alongside of the men who are also kind of fathering the church, uh, regardless of the labels or the ordination process or the um, the authority that mm-hmm. is is given. Um, I think I think thinking more about that balance in the church of mothers and fathers mm-hmm. uh, was really helpful to me in my own journey to think about my gender when it came to my role mm-hmm. in the church. Well, and and just to add on to that, the other thing that I would make sure is clear is that being a spiritual mother or a spiritual father is has nothing to do with whether or not you actually have biological children or 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 adopted children for that matter. You can be a fruitful spiritual mother, a fruitful spiritual father, and not be married and not and not have your own children, um, which is I think we see that more readily in in places like the Catholic Church where they have. They have an actual vowed orders that are seeking to be spiritual mothers and fathers without um, marriage and, and children, but you can see it in our churches as well. Um, so I would hope that people can imagine themselves in that place even without that. I was thinking similarly in the Catholic tradition, but also in more liturgical traditions, the, for lack of using the exact same word, the tradition of having godfathers and godmothers present at yeah. baptism, right? And the um, almost the, I love... For our listeners, we had Dr. Carnes on talking about motherhood, and in her book, she talks about the experience of like releasing her daughter in baptism to their godparents, and what an odd experience mm-hmm. that was for her to even intellectually or emotionally grapple with. But that's, I think that's a that's another really beautiful image of the family of God mm-hmm. being not superseding, but being the um, foundation on which all the other things grow. Yes, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and, and if listeners are familiar with uh, some of Blake's story that he has told, his whole sort oh, of yeah. gateway drug into gender theology was because it, Blake is he's a triplet, and there were these amazing, incredible single women who were surrogate mothers for the entirety of Still here. Talked to the, one last week. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, just seeing that in action, we, I I think that's – I hope that our listeners are, are – hopefully hearing some questions and hearing some ideas that maybe they've never pondered before, maybe they've never thought of. Um, and we offer that to them as sort of a, a, a dipping a toe into the exploration of a theology of family, but, but really getting down to some brass tacks because it is Advent. Mm-hmm. And for, I mean, what people start has started celebrating Christmas, like back in August. And, you know, if that's <laughs> you, uh, God have mercy on your soul. But, but you know, <laughs> in this, in the season of Advent, we always like to kind of highlight, uh, what's going on. And, um, I, Emily, I, if I'm not mistaken, you have some practices that you guys do with your family mm-hmm. during Advent. Uh, would you yeah. care to share some of that with us? Sure. Yeah. So I've actually been thinking a lot about this because our, our practices as a family in Advent tend to be mainly oriented to getting ready for Christmas, mm-hmm. right? Which is, which is fine. That's how Advent tends to function, um, preparing us for the mystery of Christmas. But I've actually been thinking whether we should change up some things because, mm. because Advent traditionally was focused on the second coming, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's mm. not just the first coming in the incarnation, but the second coming. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but right now, like, I am ready for some, like, second coming come judgment. Jesus, please come in judgment. Like, set things right, yeah. please. We need it. Um, anyway, so I, I, that's my caveat. Like, I recognize that that's, I really want to, to focus on his return. But the only thing I can think of in church history that actually, like, re- I don't know, tangibly receives that emphasis is, like, I think there was a time when they would do Advent series instead of being like hope, what is it? Peace, 
hope, faith, faith love. love. Yeah. Yes. Something yes. like that. Yes. Hope, they, they, hope, peace, love, faith. Yeah. Faith. Is that the, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but they used to do, it was judgment, death, heaven and hell so bring back apocalyptic <laughs> advent like that's what we're saying we're, we're gonna hashtag it. yes we're All hashtagging right. okay yeah. but like for real so my family we have an advent wreath with candles that we light um, one candle for each week and so we we have family worship um morning and then morning with scripture reading and then evening just prayer and so in the mornings we we light the candle and we actually have a a um a reading of the bible story that takes us from genesis all the way to the birth of christ and honestly we got that offline we we got this plan off online that was just all these like bible stories key bible stories from all the way through scripture so we just renew god's story that's the first thing we focus on is just storytelling this is the story of God's people. This is our story. So we do that. That coincides with our, uh, what's called a Jesse tree. I don't know if people will know what that is. This is something you can Google. There's lots of options for how to do this. Our Jesse tree is felt because we're former Southern Baptists and you can't take the felt out of the Southern Baptist. That's right. There it is. Bring it back. And so we created this like felt tree that we hang on the wall and we have um, ornaments that correspond to those stories, mm. the Bible stories. And so each day we read a story and we put the ornament up on the tree and it eventually fills the whole tree leading up to uh, Christmas Eve. And so the kids really like that. We have to like, they fight over who gets to do what, who lights the candle, who puts the ornament up, <laughs> you know, so that's fun. Now that's more, you know, the happy clappy sort of getting ready for yeah. Christmas stuff. For me, this season, I will say that I am renewing my commitment to pray the great litany, mm -hmm. which is yeah. something we don't think about normally till Lent because yeah. it's it's normally the, the first Sunday in Lent. But man, is it relevant right now, mm. um, as particularly in the midst of a plague, in the midst of a tumultuous national election. Yeah, It just feels like everything is in disorder. And so Advent is traditionally about uh, anticipating Christ's coming and coming judgment. So this is a good time. If you don't know the Great Litany, you can find it easily online, uh, thegreatlitany.com. Actually, you can just look it up and read it off the internet. Um, it's, a, it's compelling. It's hard. It's sad. Um, but I think Advent should be a time to repent and ask God for mercy and ask God for, for his justice to come. So I don't know if we'll do that as a family, but that's something that I will be committing yeah. myself to for sure. Yes. And yeah. you're spot on Advent 2020. I mean, let's be real. It's going to be different. It's going to just, it's just going to have to be very, we're not just, it's not just all going to be candles and the cinnamon spice and all of that. It's so if you see on social media, friends, the McGowan family dressed up as the four horsemen, you can know <laughs> it's like, right. this isn't a Halloween. This is an Advent. This is, we are bringing back Advent. To Make Advent apocalyptic again. I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's right. But it's so true. Yeah. What, what a wonderful time to reflect on the second coming and on justice and on mm -hmm. the righting of wrongs and of renewal and, and Jubilee and, right. and all of these, all of these things. 
uh, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go back and rethink this now. I'm gonna have to like really <laughs> sit in this and like get get into it because that's oh man, that's just that is so great. But but really having that spiritual practice during this time, my soul has been hungry for Advent because mm-hmm. there's just these moments in the church calendar where we we really dig in and like you know invest spiritually and what a year, what a year for it. Because we start, we kind of started this in Lent. <laughs> we did. Right? Well, and I think also yeah. kind of connecting to the conversation that we've had previously, right? What both in his incarnation and in his second coming, a reminder of the institution that lives on in the king, which is the kingdom of God, right? Which is the church. And how do we, how do we orient our families? How do we orient, if we're single, our lives individually but also collectively together to remind ourselves not only that we have been united in christ but that we will um be further united in his second coming one resource let me another plug please but not for me my my greatest resource on on advent for this year is fleming rutledge's book Mm, advent mm -hmm. which is just Mm -hmm. a collection of her sermons and um and writings on advent and man to me, I mean, she, she's, her writings have just been such an encouragement to me this fall. I started reading it like four yes. weeks ago. <laughs> I was like, make it better Fleming, please. Um, yeah. And Fleming loves Advent. I don't think I've yes. ever seen someone love Advent. as She's almost like sad when Christmas is here I because know. Advent is over. She <laughs> loves, her. loves Advent. Yeah. yeah. So if you need help getting in the like proper Advent spirit, uh, Fleming, Fleming is, your, is your gal. Fleming yeah. Rutledge fantastic ah yes indeed well we would love uh to we with all of our guests emily we'd like to end um giving you some time to tell our listeners about how they can find you how they can follow you you are actually there's a project with ivp coming up that Mm -hmm. you are um editing i'd love if you feel comfortable talking a little bit about that and letting our listeners know so they can be on the lookout yeah there's actually i've actually got a couple of projects with ivp the the soonest one is that um, I'm completing a, a volume on the season of Christmas, speaking of Advent. Um, so uh, Esau Macaulay is editing a collection of books in a series on the seasons of the church year. And um, Tish Warren is kicking us off with Advent. And then I'm doing Christmas. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is supposed to do Epiphany. Esau's doing Lent. We've got West Hill doing Easter. And then Emilio Alvarez doing Pentecost and Ordinary Time. So Awesome. I'm writing the volume on Christmas. That's going to be submitted in the fall, Jesus willing. And then I'm uh, more long-term. I'm writing, I'm actually writing a book on a theology of the family and I'm trying to frame it in terms of the church and in terms of the kingdom of God. And I hope to write something that is not beholden to these kinds of blueprints we've been discussing, but is still like practical and rooted in the real life nitty gritty of of actual households and what they have to do and how they have to live together. So that's the other thing that I'm working on uh, long-term beyond that. Oh, fantastic. Well, we will be on the lookout for those. Oh, and all of those people she mentioned in the series, friends. I literally was like, that lineup is insane. <laughs> Google them. I love it. Go Google yeah. them, follow them on everything. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. But we're we we've we've been sort of nerding out on Anglican this <laughs> yeah, episode sorry, for guys. sure. But you know, we 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 get our due. Hey, it's it's it comes with the territory, our listeners know. Um, but uh, Emily, it's been wonderful having you on Mutuality Matters today and and um, we just hope that our listeners have enjoyed this and will connect with you and uh, will support you and read what you've put out and follow you for your upcoming works. Um, but just thank you for sharing thank with us Thank you. Today. It's been fun.
I love her. I there are some of these episodes um that I walk in knowing how awesome that they're going to be. Yeah. And still come away incredibly surprised. Like I have respected and admired her from afar, but after our conversation I was not only excited to share the episode, I was just so grateful to have been a part of the conversation. It she was so gracious in giving and I love Advent, as yes. you love Advent. So yes, I love uh, the fact that she brought us back to the fact that it's quite apocalyptic. Like, yeah. let's let's not forget, this isn't just about Christmassy stuff. Advent also is about, like, waiting for the second coming. Death, so bring on <laughs> yeah. the apocalyptic literature. Yes, she's she was That's just fantastic. Fun. So listeners, we're, we hope you enjoyed this um, as do. much as we did. I loved particularly and i i think i pointed this out in the episode i loved her line that our our dinner table should be uh sacramental extensions of the eucharistic yes. table and like come on <sighs> if you don't cry at that i don't know what's gonna make you cry i'm t- i i cry because covid and because like I that's agree. that's the beautiful picture that i feel like my heart is missing um Agreed. but ah oh, so beautiful come jesus come soon yeah. yes indeed i would encourage all of you to follow her at Emily McGowan on Twitter. She's funny. She's insightful um, and always edifying. Um, and she talked about at the end of this episode, a project that I didn't know about when we got yes. on this interview. So but exciting. it's for InterVarsity Press. She's going to be a part of a series on the Christian year. And it's a new series tentatively titled The Fullness of Time, A Journey Through the Church Year. And she's going to be doing the book on Christmas, which is going to be very exciting with other remarkable theologians doing other books in that series so keep your eye out for that in 2022 but we thank you for joining us today and listening to our conversation with dr mcgowan if you enjoy our podcast and we hope you do we'd love to hear from you we're on facebook we're on instagram and twitter but please leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use we appreciate you connecting us to other listeners and would really love your feedback also if you really liked the podcast you should join our Patreon account. Yes. We put up really fun content, some um, very, very unedited conversations about (laughs) um, a myriad of topics. um, And we'd love to see you there and connect with you there. So you should go check that out. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, the Reverend Aaron Monez, and our fabulous producer, Bailey Dingley, where mutuality matters. Thanks for listening.